Amen. Well, good morning, Mount Calvary Church. It's a beautiful day. We're so thankful that you can be here with us, that we can worship together. If you're new here, we love that you've chosen to worship with us today. Um, One of the things you'll notice about Mount Calvary Church, we are unapologetic in our love for God's Word. And we love teaching and thinking and speaking about God's inherent, inerrant, authoritative, beautiful Word. And so every week, we study it, we go deep into it, we want to know the truth because we believe that it is authoritative and speaks into our life, to our purpose, into our joy. And so one of the things that that I pray most every Sunday is that we would have the courage to live like we actually believe that this word is authoritative, that we would live as if it is truly authoritative, that God's word would stop us in our tracks that it would build us up, that it would tear us down where we need to be torn down, but that we would have the courage and the humility to let this book and the truth in this word dictate our lives. And so that's, that is a distinctive, that is a value of Mount Calvary Church. And to that end, we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel this summer. Hopefully you've enjoyed getting to study through this book. I have been challenged as as we've done it as well. Uh, This morning we're going to be in chapter 8. And so if you could turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We start a new section in 1 Samuel 8. We are, it is a seismic shift in the history of Israel from the judges being governed by the judges to now in 1 Samuel 8, we start to hear about the rule of the kings. And so this morning, I'll read the first, all 22 verses of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were talking, who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers 
And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, we come to a text like this, and it is, it is tragic, and it is sad. It is tough to read as we see the people of God turning their backs on you. So God, now as we study this and really analyze it and consider it and meditate on what this, this text is saying. God, I pray that you would help us first to understand what's happening here in 1 Samuel 8. But God, even more than just knowledge, I pray that you would help us as we understand the text to see where we fit into this. That this would not just be a story, a historical story from the Old Testament, but this would be powerful, life-changing word for, for us today. And so, God, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we would hear what you need us to hear, but then, then we would have the courage and the boldness and the humility to confess where we need to confess, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to follow you according to this truth. And so, God, we ask for your help now as we study your text through your spirit, by your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you were here last week, I began my sermon with an illustration about the tragic story of Christopher McCandless. You remember the story last week, the story, maybe you weren't here, it's the story of Into the Wild, a young man who was graduating high school and decided, I mean, he was done with all of life that was around him, the materialism and the expectations and his family and everything that he had. And, and so he literally, on a moment's notice, left without telling anyone. And he cut up his credit cards and he cut up his IDs. He gave all the money that was in his name to charities. And he just, he left everything. And he began hitchhiking and living with nothing. And it was really sad to see this young man trying to make things work. Uh, his goal was always to get into the wilds or the Alaskan wilds and to live off the land. And so um, after doing, after hitchhiking and living a really bizarre life, he finally gets to the wilds of Alaska, as we talked about last week. He hikes 12 miles in to Alaska, finds an abandoned bus, which he calls the Magic Bus. Um, interesting name, but that's what it was. He lived in the Magic School, not the school bus, that's something else. The Magic Bus. He lives in the Magic Bus, and after about 100 days, when he realizes he can't go back because of the river, 
um, he ends up starving to death in that bus. And it's a tragic story. And um, he was discovered by two hunters. Um, and for us, we hear, and last week when I shared the story in more detail, the, the way that we feel about this story, hopefully, is that this, this is tragedy. I mean, the whole time, I even mentioned it, I think, last week. We want Christopher to go home. Just go home. Get out of Alaska and the wilds. This dream that you had is not all that you thought it would be. Cross the river and go home. But he realized, I, I can't go home. But the tone of the story or the feel of the story is that this, this is tragedy. But what I didn't realize as I was doing research on this story is that for, for many people, this story isn't, it's not tragedy. This story is celebrated. It's not something that's looked down upon. It's not a sad of it. Instead, this, this story is, is memorialized and it's celebrated. And what I mean by that is that when this story came out about Christopher, the book was written by John Krakauer in the 90s. A movie was made in the 2000s. But quickly, this movie and this story became a cultural phenomenon, a celebrated story of a young man going after his heart's uh, passions and finding freedom and releasing from the culture and going into nature. And so what happened is that thousands of people started to idolize this story. And one of the things that these, they call them these pilgrims did of Christopher's, that they would make that same hike in Alaska in hopes to find the, the bus, not the magic bus, the bus. Uh, yeah, it is the magic, not the magic school bus, the magic bus. And so they take these, these crazy, I'll call them crazy followers of Christopher who, who idolized what he was, this pursuit that he was on, take this, this hike into the woods. But here's, here's the tragedy. Okay, the tragedy is, is that this is not an easy hike. There was one reporter who, who was studying these thousands of people every summer who try to take this trail into Alaska. And she did a piece on, like, this young man died on this, on this hike. I mean, he, this was not a good thing for him. Why are you doing this? And here, here was her response uh, about what the, these followers were saying. They said, um, the people I encountered, she said, would always talk about freedom. I would ask, what does that even mean? I had a sense that it represented a catch-all. It represented an idea of what the people might want to do or be. I met one man who was a consultant who just had a baby who wanted to change his life to be a carpenter, but he couldn't. So he took a week to visit the bus. People see McCandless as someone who just went and did it. These people who idolize him for freedom. But the tragedy is this is a story that ends in death. It's the end. But what happens is, is what's really tragic about all these followers and fans is that this is a, a dangerous hike. It's not just something for beginners. And over the last 20-some years that people have been making this hike, there have been many, many serious accidents. Hikers. In 2013, 2013, who had to be rescued. In 2019, three more German hikers had to be airlifted by a military helicopter out on the hike. And even most tragic of all, there's been several people who have died trying to make this hike. That river that he would not cross back 
When people get there, they think they can cross it only to be swept away to their death. And so the question is, I'm just reading about these, these people, and actually they've, they've removed the bus. So if you're thinking, maybe I could do that hike. It's, it's now been, as of a couple years ago, been airlifted out of there because why is this still happening? Why aren't we mourning what happened to Christopher? And why are we celebrating and then repeating it? I mean, literally repeating the same story again. And, and 1 Samuel 8, this is how it reads. A sad, tragic repetition of what's happened in the past. You know, 1 Samuel 7, last week, it was fun to preach it. If you go back and you read 1 Samuel 7, it's, you know, the, the people have wandered from God. Remember, they, they were far from God. But Samuel comes and says, you can cross the river. You, you can come back, direct your heart, lament, get rid of the things that you're holding on to. And do you remember what they did? They, they followed Samuel. They, they directed their hearts. They worshiped and they fasted. They prayed they saw in that moment in chapter 7 that God was worthy, and they responded to him. And then the battle came. Remember the battle? What did they do? They called on Samuel to pray. They didn't come up with some wild idea. They prayed, and then the thunder of God came, and they were victorious. And what did they build to remember God's victory, that God is good, and he will provide, and he is with them the Ebenezer, this memorial. And so, but chapter 8 is a sequel. You get to chapter 8, and things have kind of shifted. The first couple of verses, Samuel is now old. So, in other words, there is a new generation. It's not the same people of chapter 7 who repented and prayed and worshiped and fasted and built the Ebenezer. 1 Samuel 8, it is a new generation, and it is a sequel, but it is very sadly not a sequel of chapter 7. It is not repetitious of the repentance of chapter 7. 1 Samuel 8 is a, is a sequel to 1 Samuel chapter 4. So if you go back, remember 1 Samuel 4, Ryan Martin preach that message. They go into battle. They bring in the ark thinking, we've got this great idea of how we can fix this problem with the Philistines. And it was not God's idea. And Israel was completely, almost completely destroyed. That was the low point. And we worked our way four, five, six, seven to the peak. And that was the high note was chapter seven, where they look back on chapter four. Remember, we talked about those 20 years and finally, after 20 years, where they got God's presence out into the woods, they said, we're, we're ready to return to God. And they do that. So we see the spiritual peak. And then in 1 Samuel 8, you're just hoping that this new generation, Samuel is old, and the kids will just continue on that trajectory, following God, lamenting over their sin, directing their hearts to him. But that is not the case. Instead of continuing, we go back to chapter four, concocting some bad idea for this new generation. And so this morning, this sermon in 1 Samuel 8 is for the, new, for the next generation. My young kids here in the room, 
my high schoolers, my college students. I mean, how's your generation going to be defined? Because the faith of the people in chapter 7 doesn't directly impact the faith of those in chapter 8. And so this is for that next generation. Samuel is old. What will be their legacy? How will they respond to God? And so to kind of break this chapter down, these first three verses are going to be the circumstances. That's not on the screen, but really two main sections. What they wanted, what Israel, this new generation, wanted. The fix that they had in mind. And then what it would cost. When they got what they wanted, what would it cost them? Verses 10 through 18. And so those first three verses, as we kind of start to look at this, these are the circumstances. This is what's causing this seismic shift. No longer an appointed judge as God leads, but now they want a king. Well, what what caused that? Verse 1, Samuel, all of a sudden, he's now old. That's what happens. He's getting older, and so he's coming up with a secession plan. Who is going to lead after me? What, what is, what's next? Because I can't do this forever. And so as he realizes his time is coming to an end, he comes up with a plan. And it's a bad plan. What's his plan? My sons will be the judges in my place. And as I was thinking about it, it's, it, as I was thinking about it, it smells like Eli's sons. Now, literally, it looks, it, it feels like that. His two sons, remember those adjectives? They were worthless sons that didn't know the Lord. And this is how it feels like, why Samuel? We don't typically get on Samuel's case very much, but you read this and you're like, why did you do this, Samuel? You didn't have to have your sons secede you, right? In this wasn't the priesthood. The priesthood was based on family lines, but the judges was based on God's leadership and the leading of the Spirit to pick these new judges who would help Israel in specific moments of crisis turn to God. Yet he makes a bad decision. And so Israel objects in verse 5. But what do they say in their objection? They say, appoint us a king. And this kind of starts to clue us in that though they should object because these sons were wicked, the reasons that they are objecting maybe aren't the best. What do I mean by that? I mean, the fact that they're saying appoint to us a king shows us that they don't recognize the issue of what's happening here with Samuel and his sons. They are, they are in support of a system with kings and the king's sons being the ones that are going to be in, be in charge and in leadership. Yeah, and they are proposing a system. And, and they, should have, they should have learned that you can have a good king, a good judge, a good leader, and you can have bad sons. And so they are proposing a system that's not going to solve the problem. They're not asking for a righteous spiritual, God-centered judge. They are asking for a new system altogether. And what I'm trying to say is they're not asking for the system of the king just because Samuel's sons were wicked. They want a king for other reasons. And it's these reasons that I think are really pivotal for us 
as we consider this text. And so that's the question. Why does Israel want a king? Like what does the text tell us that's going on in their hearts that causes them to have a desire for the king? And so there's two that I see in the text, and so that's what I want to look at now. Why? Verse 5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Why do they really want a king? They want to be like the nations. Now, this is, this is a loaded phrase. I mean, this is, this is revealing to us about what's going on. Why do they want a king? We want to be like the nations. And I think it's more than just, well, we want to be like the nations. They have kings. That's how they govern. And so we want to be like the nations, and we want to have kings like the nations. I think it's more than that. When you see this phrase, like the nations, in Scripture, it's more than just we want to be like them in their system of government, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with the system of government. That, that's not inherently wrong to have a king. It's the reasons they want a king. They want to be like the nations. Look at, I'll put Ezekiel 20 on the screen. What, do we, what does it mean to be like the nations? Well, in Ezekiel, he says, God says, what's in your mind shall never happen. The thought... Let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. So here in Ezekiel, when they say we want to, when they're thinking we want to be like the nations, what are they, what are they really saying? We want to worship like the nations. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be our own leaders. We want to have our own families. We don't want you to be king. And so to say we want to be like the nations is to say, essentially, we don't want you to be our king, God. We don't want you to lead us. We want to worship and do whatever, whatever we want. And this is, what, this is what Samuel sees. This is what God sees in verse 7 and 8. What does God say? They're not rejecting you, Samuel. This is bigger than that. This isn't just about the system of government with judges and kings. Who are they rejecting? They are rejecting me. They are worshiping other gods like they've always done. And them asking for a king, wanting to be like the nations, is them saying, we reject you completely, God. We want to do what we want to do. And so for Israel, you, you just have to see this is a big deal. We, this is counter to everything that they were to stand for. They were, they were called to be a holy nation, set apart, a light to the nations, distinctive and separate, bringing God's hope to the world around them. And now they're saying, we don't want to be Israel. We don't want to be your chosen people. We want to be just like everyone else, just like our culture, and we want to worship like they do. We want to lead like they do. We want to have everything that they have. And so for us, what's the application for this? I mean, how, how do we take this thought of saying we want to be like the culture? Well, th this is an easy application for us, for us to sit, all of us, and to ask the question, how am I more like the culture than I am like Jesus Christ. 
to pray this week. Here's, this is what came to, to my heart as I was studying this passage this week. What if we prayed this prayer asking God, show me in my life where I look more like the culture than I do Jesus Christ. To pray that, to write that prayer down and to just pray and to say, God, help me to see through your spirit how am I more like the culture and the world and the values of the people who don't know you and less like you? Because this happens. This happens. This happens here at Mount Calvary Church. It happens with me and it happens with you. I know it happens here where things that we do don't look like Jesus. It looks more like our world, our marriages. Many of our marriages look more like a worldly system of marriages than a Christ-like marriage, a marriage that shows the love of Christ and the church. Our anger, our view of finances, our patience, or whatever it is, our values, our parenting, a lot of things in our life, we, if we were honest, we'd say, looks more like the culture, the values of the world, than it does Christ. And for me, this, this, whole, this whole section of brought me back to Romans 12. And we know Romans 12 well. Like the nations, not being like the nations, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, I remember as a high school student, I wanted to be, as a middle school student, when I first heard the gospel, the first time, I, I wanted to be like the nations still, like the world. I still, I, I still wanted to, to have my same types of relationships and still wanted to be a party animal and have be mean. And, but I, I liked the gospel, and I tried to just, those, those first couple years, I really was stuck in between them. I wanted to be like the world, but I liked going to church. And then that summer, where Romans 12, 2 was the central passage of the week. And I mean, I was arrested by this. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that there is no middle ground, that by the mercies of God, when we come to the altar to follow God, it's not, well, okay, we don't come to the altar and say, well, I'll give you Sundays and I'll give you my finances and my relationships, but what I do on my phone, I'm not giving that to you. Now, what's the altar for? The altar is for your, your whole life. It's your body. It's everything. And so what Samuel's saying, what Paul is saying, what God is saying is that it, to say that, that I'm going to be like the nations in these ways, but not like God, is to say we don't want him to be our king. And so this week, pray and ask God, how, how might I be more conformed to you in some way, in whatever way, God, show me and not like the world. But that wasn't the only reason. Right? It wasn't the only reason they wanted a king. If you caught verse 20 of chapter 8, so he's going to warn them about the cost, and we'll talk about that. But at the end, after the warning, it's really tragic what they say. And I keep saying that word, tragic, but it is. It's When they say at the end, like, well, we're going to do it anyways, and we don't care what you say, and they reiterate why they want a king in verse 20, that we may also be like the nations, 
that our king may judge us. But look at this. And go. Why do they want a king? They want a king to go out before us and fight our battles. It's clear what they're saying. We don't want to win our battles the way they've been winning them. We don't want you to fight for us, God. It's like, where's the Ebenezer? You just wonder. I wonder. Where was the Ebenezer when they said this? Like, where was it? Did they cover it? I mean, had they just forgotten about it? Because that is the, the example of God fighting their battles for them and having, and having victory. But now they're saying, get rid of the Ebenezer. That's not what we want anymore. And, and clearly here, this new generation, they, they want a new way of doing business. We're not, God's not fighting our battles. Exodus chapter 14, where the people are, are their feet are in the Red Sea and they feel the, the rumbling chariots coming behind them. And what is most, and they're, they're just, they're scared. They're freaking out. All these, these, their death is soon. And what does Moses say to them? Exodus 14, 14. One of my favorite passages. It says, let me read it for you. <clears throat> you don't have to fight. You don't have to worry. Just be still. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Stop worrying. Stop. Do you think you're going to swim it? How are you going to fix this? And Moses comes in and says, God will fight your battle for you. Just sit there and trust him. The same thing happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 with Jehoshaphat, and we don't have any time. But you go, it's the same thing. There are hordes of armies all around them. Jehoshaphat comes with the high priest, and they say, God will fight this battle for you. Just stop trying to figure it out and trust him. And so clearly, they, they wanted a new way to do battles because we know in, in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, that they were worried about other people coming against them. It wasn't just the Philistine. The Ammonites were on the east. That's what 1 Samuel 11 tells us in his closing address. I mean, they were worried. They had fear. People are barreling down on both sides against us, and we want a king to go to battle for us. They'd forgotten everything that God had done for their fathers. And so for us, just thinking about this, what, what does that mean for us? It's pithy and it's maybe memorable to say, let God fight your battles this week. But I hate that. I, that's a strong word. I don't like that. Like, what does that mean? God will fight your battles this week. Well, what does it really mean, though, for this week, for us to look like that we, we will trust God in our battles? This is what it means. It means we will not despair and we will not be overly anxious when trouble comes our way. But the first thing that we will do, the first thing we will do is not what we usually do, which is pray. The first thing is we will fall to our knees and we say, God, you are sovereign and you are king and you are directing history and you are directing my life and I'm committing this to you. The first thing we typically do is we Fix it. 
We go out to fix whatever the battle, whatever the problem, whatever the struggle is, we go out to, to manipulate, to figure out a way to solve the problem. But here's what we see here. The first step is God will fight our battles for you, which means we pray and we trust him to do what he wants with the situation. So what would it cost? that's why they want a king. They want someone to fight their battles for them. They want to be like the nations, adopting the values of the world around them. And it's really sobering. What does God do? He says, okay, give it to them. Give it to them. They can have what they want. You think of Paul in Romans 1. God gave them up to what they wanted. Say, this is what you want. This is what you can have. But guess what? When you, when you embrace the values of the world and you fight to solve all your problems without God, when you make anything king other than the king of the universe, God himself, guess what? It comes with a cost. It co it's costly. Verses 10 through 18. Don't put the verses up yet. What was the emphasized, this is interaction here, what was the emphasized word when I read it that hopefully jumped off the page at you that we saw six times? Who said it? Take, 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 take. You want, you want a person to be your king? Okay. He's gonna take your, your son's. It's going to take your daughters. It's going to take your produce and your fields and your money. And by the way, he's going to take your lives. You know what we call that? It's what it's called in the text. It's slavery. You want a life outside of God. You want something else to be the center. You want to embrace values that aren't, that isn't, that aren't based on God. Okay, you can have that. But listen, and this is the warning for, this, for the new generation here. You want to abandon the faith of your parents in chapter 7 or in your life? You want to abandon it because you're just tired of it? You were in a Christian school and you're ready for a new beginning and a new life? Listen, you can do that, but, but when you do that, you will be enslaved by whatever this new worldview is that you adopt. Take, 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 take. There is a cost. There's a cost. But, but the tragedy, and I already said it, the tragedy is that verse. Where, where is the verse? Verse where it says they, they do it anyways. They do it anyways. They hear the warning, they hear the cost, and they say, give us a king. And so here's my cry to you, new generation, next generation today, is be more like your parents in their faith in 1 Samuel 7. Hear your parents Trust your parents. Hear me. Trust me. Hear your leaders. Trust your youth leaders. That there is no life with anything else as the king of your life. And if you just want to experiment, well, I just want to learn it for myself. You, you can do that, but you will be enslaved by your sin. That's what sin does. It, a big promise up front. Freedom. Remember that quote from the, the journalist? Freedom, looking for freedom. Well, what did they get? They got death. They got death. That's the promise. That's, this is the great lie of all of Scripture. 
Sin makes a big promise, and it comes up way short. Having Jesus be your king and your sinner is the only thing that delivers. So it's my prayer for this next generation that we, that you, would not be like the Israelites of chapter 8, but you'd be like the parents of chapter 7, directing your heart to him, worshiping, praying, and fasting, saying, God, you fight my battles for me. I give it all to you. And for the rest of us, not the next generation, but all of us here this week, the prayer that we're praying, God, show me where I'm more like my culture than I'm like Christ. And when we come to our battles, whatever our troubles are this week, when we come to them, first thing we do, we pray. We pray. We don't just talk about praying. We don't text. We don't get on Google. We don't figure out some solutions. We don't talk to our spouse. First, first thing, we pray. God, here it is. I give it to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. God, I do pray for this next generation. You know, we see this next generation in 1 Samuel 8. You're, you're Judge Samuel is getting older. There's a new decision that has to be made. And we see the wrong decision made. The wrong decision. Saying to you, you won't be our king. We want somebody else. And God, I, so I pray for our kids and our teenagers and our children and our college students. God, that they would, they would remember. Remember your faithfulness in the past. They'd make you the center of their lives. They wouldn't turn to something else to be their king, but they would turn to you. And I pray that not just for the next generation. I pray that for me. I pray that for everyone. I pray that for all of us. God, this, this week, help us, show us how might we be more like you and less like our culture. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.